Welcome to Food for Thought, the podcast where we talk about anything and everything as it pertains to health and wellness. And today we are doing a bit of a blast from the past in that we are going to the crypt of some of the stuff that we discussed way back when in season two, when we tackled a lot of the prevailing myths that have been circulating and percolating for ages when it comes to what to eat or not to eat, those numbers and what they mean or don't mean. But today we're going to look at some of the newer buzzwords that you might be hearing that you will want to be cautious about. Hi everyone, I'm Carissa McKay, one of the health promotion specialists at CFB Edmonton, and today I'm joined by both my awesome colleagues, Nicole Emerson and Heather Garot-Miller, as we talk about why it is more important than ever to be cautious about what you're hearing, question who is the messenger, and remain skeptical about anything that sounds too good to be true. Welcome back, ladies. Hi, happy to be here. Thanks, Carissa. So we have spoken in the past about the challenges that we have all encountered or endured over the last several years. And it's honestly getting even harder to wade through what is fact or fiction when it comes to information that we're getting from a variety of sources. TikTok has gained a tremendous foothold in terms of its use as a search engine, which is mind-blowing in a completely scary way. And so what people are hearing, seeing, and more concerning believing is at an all-time high level of questionable content. Unless you are limiting yourself to getting crochet tips or ways to increase the likelihood that your indoor plants survive from the internet, it seems to be common sense that we need to be wary and aware of those people who are preying on our insecurities, and that simply cannot be overstated. Not that the internet is bad, but you can find something that reinforces what you already believe, and that doesn't mean that you have found proof. It just means that someone else may be agreeing with you. If you're getting all your facts from barben.com or livestrong.com or men's health or heaven forbid shape magazine, chances are good that you're only going to be getting part of the whole story. What are you all hearing when it comes to health or fitness that you would like to start with as we begin to debunk some of these myths? Let's start with the BMI or maybe more specifically body composition. And we talked about BMI on our last episode of season two, because it's still widely used as an indicator of health and wellness. But unfortunately, that number doesn't tell the whole story. We've also been hearing more about people using in-body scanners, in some cases at their local gym, and getting their body composition measured. Now, Chrissy, you did a bit of a deep dive on the in-body website. What did you find? Well, I went to the website just to see what the scoop was. And after about, I don't know, 30 seconds or so, a pop-up appeared with the caption, how to make money with your in-body scanner. I think that pretty much says it all. And then you don't even have to go very far into the site to see the information that would make most people turn around and run because they used what is common practice, a fraction of a grain of truth. And then they take that kernel of truth and wrap the whole story around it. Anyway, they say that the results of the in-body scanners are within... And this is a quote, 0.99 of DEXA for lean body mass in a population of normal weight adults. What does that mean, actually? Well, DEXA stands for dual energy X-ray absorptiometry, which is an imaging test to measure bone density. Hmm. So they're using a bone density scan as the benchmark to which the in-body compares within 0.99. So A, not comparing apples to apples. Bone density is not the same as muscle, water, bone. B, 0.99 of what? If anyone remembers their stats, and for me, I actually had to look it up because I blocked that because it was just traumatic when I was in university. Anyway, 0.99 can mean a bunch of different things. If it's a p-value of 0.99, it means that there is no statistical significance, correlation, or association. Basically, that the effect essentially happened as a result of chance. Or if they mean a confidence interval, 
essentially the number of times that an outcome is expected, then 0.99 means that 99% of the time the value is what you would expect between a predetermined range, and 1% of the time you would get something much bigger or much smaller. So that being the case, one would hope that the number is what you would expect most of the time when you hop on the in-body. But the sticking point is the phrase, in a population of normal weight adults, which then begs the question of, if you were a normal weight adult, pretty big range there for every height, which is good, we are not a homogeneous population, why do you need to know what your percentage of water, bone, and muscle is? You can actually, in all seriousness, see that by standing starkers in front of a mirror. It's definitely concerning how this information may be used or interpreted outside of like a clinical or research setting. It also makes you wonder what people are hoping to achieve with this. Knowing that your right arm is slightly more hydrated than your left arm doesn't seem to be entirely beneficial, but gauging your overall hydration status is extremely beneficial. And the best and easiest way to do that is by looking at the color of your pee, really. Exactly. So, I mean, these are the things that I think people don't ask themselves, right? They don't necessarily look at these way more obvious solutions or answers. Because we also know from our previous episode that poor Mr. Quetlet's formula has been essentially misused in order to compare individuals using population-based benchmark, which, to refresh everybody's memories, is neither good, helpful, nor valuable. And now we can get further demoralized or confirm our confirmation bias by hopping on the old in-body scan. Perfect. I don't know how many times a person needs to hear this, but the best way to know if your body is changing is how your clothes fit. Do your pants fall down? Yes. Then you've probably lost weight. Are the legs on your pants tighter than they were before? Great. All those leg days, they're paying off. When you put your shirt on, does it end up looking like something the Hulk threw out? Well done. All those back exercises did what they were supposed to do. Honestly, it simply doesn't make a difference for the average person to know that number because in their heart of hearts, they already know the story. And that goes back to the whole issue of societal pressures and expectations of how a person is expected to look aesthetically, which unfortunately also manifests itself in how people choose to view food and eat or not eat, as the case may be. Absolutely. When we had our Nutrition Month booth serving up healthy post-workout snacks, it was interesting to see people's preferences. We had a choice of white or chocolate milk to go, sliced oranges, and a choice of a snack-sized bag of pretzels or crackers. The white milk, a bag of pretzels, and orange together would have given you a pretty close approximation of what you'd want to have in a post-workout snack by way of 60 to 90 grams of carbohydrate, 20 to 30 grams of protein, and fluid. Our snack as provided was higher than the new recommendations of basically a three to one ratio of carbs to protein. But for a lot of people that took the snack, it was likely breakfast, so would still be fine. And if they chose to save the orange for later, it would have reduced their carbs to where it was actually hitting the three to one a little bit more closely. We were surprised when the bags of pretzels and crackers ended up being the least popular choice, which to be fair, they're not a typical breakfast item and not everyone likes them. But it also got us thinking and wondering what other factors may be influencing people's choices. For sure. If you just did a weight training workout, you need to replenish your glycogen to a lesser degree than if you had done a hit or an endurance bike workout. But at the end of the day, what we provided that day was simply fuel for the machine. And whether that is oatmeal most days or a bag of pretzels as a special occasion departure one day, that's not going to make or break a person's goals, whatever those might be. I guess it really makes me shake my head in both wonderment and frustration 
how much influence the folks on social media or that sell products or who work in gyms or honestly, even just word of mouth based on faulty science have on the mindset and beliefs that people hold and won't let go of, even in the face of evidence to the contrary. So I know we didn't really hit BMI as fully as we might have done in that previous episode, but if anybody wants to listen to that, feel free to go back to that episode. It's still available and you'll hear all about poor Mr. Quetlet. But I want to take a little bit of a hard right here because I also want to take a look at active living and injury reduction. And we've heard a term thrown around lately that had us all scratching our heads, prehab, a play on the word rehab with a twist in that is, I think it's supposed to be preventive in nature. So Carissa, prehab or prehabilitation is actually a term that has been around for some time. However, it has definitely morphed beyond where it had actually started. Prehab started as a method of pre-surgery training, usually under the direction of a physiotherapist or other health professional, depending on the reason that a person was needing it. It is a way in which a patient who needs surgery can take back some control over what's actually happening to them. They undertake a training program intended to improve the outcome of that surgery and their follow-up rehabilitation. For example, if you're slated for a knee or hip replacement, the goal would be to improve the health of the muscles, the tendons, the ligaments, as well as other joints and muscles associated with the movement patterns of that knee or hip. This will, in all likelihood, improve their outcomes and the speed of recovery post-surgery. Another example of this, which is not joint-related, would be cancer treatment. There's often a prehabilitation program associated with cancer surgery and treatment. This could include uh, cardiovascular training and strength training, patient capacity dependent, of course, but the benefits vary depending on the diagnosis. For example, a patient who has undergone chemotherapy shows a better tolerance for that treatment after participation in that strength and cardio-based prehabilitation program. Another example of that would be prehabilitation involving a yoga intervention, which has been shown to reduce patient anxiety and reduce stress and symptom severity for breast cancer patients. The deviations that have occurred around the term prehab since then are more around reducing risk of injury. You've probably seen many a website referring to this. Many physical therapists and movement professionals are utilizing this term to help to educate their patients around what kinds of exercises they could be doing to reduce their risk of developing an injury in the first place. So is prehab a thing is the question. Yes, it is. But much like many other terms that get thrown around, what that means in the context it is being used varies quite greatly. Really, the concept of prehab, without muddying the waters and calling it prehab, it should already be something you're doing with your overall training. You shouldn't necessarily have to spend extra time on prehab exercises, and those things should simply be part of your everyday training. Those things could include at a bare minimum doing your exercises properly, maintaining good posture when you're exercising, warming up, cooling down, stretching, recovering properly, cross-training, working muscles that are weak and or tight. Where this is challenging for the individual is, do you understand how to do all of these things well? If not, are you using the skills of a qualified professional that can assess your form, assess your plan? assess your weaknesses. There are many personal trainers out there who know how to put together a reasonable training program, but their ability to assess your weaknesses, that's likely beyond their scope. There are also many websites and apps out there 
trying to make a buck off you by using a trendy term like this, but they are potentially misusing a word like prehab to sell you something. So it really is buyer beware in that situation. What prehab most definitely is not is rehabilitation, with the exception of prehab done to prepare that patient for surgery. If you already have an injury, this is no longer in the scope of injury reduction. It is now rehabilitation, hopefully done with the guidance of an occupational therapist, a a physical therapist, a kinesiologist, or an exercise physiologist. So if that app or website or trainer is telling you that they can prehab your injury, this is definitely a red flag for me. I encourage people to talk to their physician, a physical therapist, that occupational therapist, a kinesiologist, or a certified exercise physiologist to get information that is applicable to your body and your needs. So while it might in fact be a thing, is it the thing for you? And more importantly, when you hear this term being thrown around, who's offering it to you? What are their credentials? What is their experience? What are they promising you? How can they make sure that you are doing what is needed in the circumstance? And is it appropriate for your injury? That's such a great description of what people should be expecting and what it actually means. And and hopefully people took notes because I was taking notes because that's the thing. There are so many questions that should be being asked before you commit to either the monthly payment plan or to the program if it's being offered locally. Your health is worth far more and is worth having the expertise to back it up before you end up doing more harm than good. Because once you have an injury, that will often nag you and end up being your proverbial Achilles heel for the rest of your life. These folks offering these things that are potentially beyond their scope of practice are likely well-meaning and they believe they are doing you a service and may not understand that they're overreaching. For many of us in the movement profession, there is an obligation for those of us that have professional designations and have a code of ethics that we have to adhere to. We need to refer when things are outside of our scope. That obligation also applies to other persons. However, because they don't have a governing body overseeing what they're doing, this may not be as obvious to them as it is to those of us with that governing body. I'm glad that you mentioned that because these are people whose credentials are, as you say, Heather, regulated and they are held to a standard. And we want people to get help, to be well, but we also want people to be safe. And um, I think that that's a really important thing to consider. So I'm super glad that you mentioned that. I'm now going to take a hard left and go back to food for a moment. I saw a post the other day by a guy on Instagram who, while I don't agree with everything he says, he did make a really good point. And that was that the myth of there being good calories and bad calories is another one of those things that just really needs to die. And I couldn't agree more. And I feel perhaps that that might be what is at the heart of the struggle that people were having with why they wouldn't take the pretzels. That's right. And calories are calories. It's a unit of measure. A calorie is the amount of energy needed to raise one gram of water by one degree Celsius. That's it. It is used to measure the energy in food. Everything that we eat or drink has calories with the exception of water or things that are sweetened by an artificial sweetener or sugar substitute. The thing to realize is that there are more nutritious foods and less nutritious foods, some of which are higher calorie, some of which are lower. Satiety is the feeling of being satisfied after a meal. 
or no longer hungry, and is sometimes impacted by the caloric density of food. You will feel a lot fuller after eating a bowl of broccoli than a bowl of chicken wings, though calorically the chicken wings are going to be significantly higher in calories. How this became a thing is the thought that if people could be made to feel full, they would eat less food and less calories and ultimately lose weight. The issue has for a long time been the serving sizes. So if a person had a smaller portion of wings, as well as the broccoli, it would have been a much more enjoyable meal without overdoing it on the calories, in addition to getting some fiber, antioxidants and other nutrients. It's not that broccoli is magical or chicken wings are bad, it's that the proportion of each should be more balanced so that you have the best of both while managing overall intake better in the long term. Exactly. It's all about that sustainability and manageability and flexibility. And again, common sense. While it is a numbers game, it is also not something that people should be getting obsessed with. There is a strong risk of developing disordered eating as a result of being so overly concerned with calories or macronutrients or weighing food. We say it all the time, but if you want chocolate cake, have a piece of chocolate cake. Keep it at a reasonable portion size and maybe think about going for a little walk after supper or maybe don't and know that tomorrow is another day, whatever, it's fine. The idea that life and eating don't have to be so rigid and prescriptive should be so freeing. But I think that that's another thing that really scares people. It's safer to eat within a set of rules, which is why some of the fad diets and meal plans are so appealing. Not having to think can be very attractive when there are so many other things that are vying for our attention. Like we said in the opening, it's been tough these last few years and people just might not have the energy to make decisions right now. It's also possible that people are attracted to things that seem fast, fun, and easy. While I don't think there's anything fun per se about kale or chia, for example, it is trendy and it's in almost everything. And so why not? You pick up a meal plan that's all about kale and chia, put your brain on autopilot and just follow the paint by number eating pattern. What's not to love? Honestly, sometimes I wish it could be that easy. I think it's that and also that there's just a lot of mixed messages out there that sometimes it just seems easier to take that so-called path of least resistance. If you aren't sure about what you should do and you have seen people have success with something or other, it can be really tempting to just follow along with what they're doing. Weight loss and changing your body is hard. It's hard work. And sometimes it's really incredibly frustrating because as much as people may say it's just a numbers game, calories in, then calories out, it often does feel like that uphill battle. And as we get older, or we might be dealing with new or old injuries, it can feel really disheartening. So for people to look for these other ways to maybe find success that's really understandable. I'm glad you mentioned that, Heather, because we do absolutely appreciate how difficult it is to commit to something that with respect to weight, muscle mass retention, and overall well-being really need to be a lifelong commitment. The idea of things needing to be fast, fun, and easy is clear in what and how people choose to try to accomplish things or not if it ends up being not fast, fun, or easy. So if you can find something to glom onto that at least promises fast and easy... It's not hard to understand why people would grab at that chance, however small. For sure. The thing to remember is that despite it not being as simple as adjusting that calories in, calories out number, most of the meal plans that a person will find tend to go one of two ways. 
For weight loss, it will be really low, like 1,500 to 1,800 calories low, sometimes even down to 1,200 calories, which will result in weight loss because you are literally going to be starving. The other option is that it is so high protein that the cost of being able to adhere to that, especially now with grocery prices being what they are, will be a real factor, not to mention the impact on our bodies of taking in more protein than we actually need. The way that we deal with any of that extra that we don't need is that it is either stored as fat or it needs to be digested and broken down, which as compared to carbs takes a lot more work. I think that the takeaway messages honestly are pretty clear. There is no one simple answer and certainly no quick or easy fix, whether that's in terms of foods to avoid, machines that are going to give you data that really isn't all that useful, strategies that might be helpful in terms of exercises and workouts that could potentially keep or get you well and ready to take on different things, but without any in-person oversight or supervision could still result in injury. So as Heather mentioned, the old buyer beware is really the best way to approach anything that at the end of the day sounds too good to be true. So final thoughts that both of you would like to share? I think that people, we all need to be more accepting of our bodies, period. Not everyone is going to look like the covers of magazines or what you might see on social media, and that's okay. What we need to do is be a little more kind and forgiving of ourselves. And we've said it before, but food and movement should be enjoyed. Totally, Nicole. After a workout, food is fuel. But it is also something that we do for enjoyment, to spend time with people, and absolutely, hopefully, to enjoy. Work out because it makes you feel good, and it helps you move better. And sure, maybe it will change how you look, and you'll feel more confident in your skin and your clothes. But it shouldn't just be about aesthetics, or maybe not at all. But that's such a hard thing to accept for most of us. It should be about what's going on on the inside. How's your blood pressure, your cholesterol, your gut health? It's tough when you're young. Nobody really thinks about that. But guess what? We all age. And so on some level, the things we are doing now are setting the foundation for what our future health is going to look like for us. Absolutely. And I can say that really, it's only now as I get older that all of those things are mattering more. So luckily with age comes wisdom and prevention is a really hard message to sell when you feel like you are 10 feet tall and bulletproof. But there you have it. If you can shift your mindset even slightly to thinking about what you are doing now in terms of what the longer term effects are going to be, that's a win. Choose more plant-based protein now. Your colon will thank you for the fiber later, but your muscles will thank you for those amino acids now. Just say no to the measurements that some scanner is going to give you. Look in the mirror. There are no shortcuts. Everything worth having or getting is going to come after hard work and commitment and dedication. And it's not about avoiding the pretzels. There are a lot of worse things that a person can be eating or doing that are going to have significantly greater impacts on their goals, drinking and smoking or vaping, to name just a few. So be real and be clear about your goals and what you hope to achieve and stop looking for that magic bullet or villainizing carbohydrates. I said at the end of the last episode that this one was going to be less controversial, but I think we might have stirred up another nest of vipers. And it's because it's something really personal to people. And when those beliefs are called into question, it gets people feeling a little prickly. Anyway, we hope you learned some stuff and maybe learned a thing or two about critical thinking when it comes to what you see in the ads or in the apps. Thanks for listening. 
Thank you, Nicole and Heather, for your contributions as usual. Always a pleasure. And we'll see all of you next episode. But in the meantime, take care, stay healthy, and we'll see you on the flip flop.